We learn by taking a look at these uh, creedal statements. Nicene Creed being a, you know, a key one, particularly for the church in the West, a key one, where we we listen to bishops. You know, bishops, leaders of the church got together in council. And for well nigh 80 or 90 years, they're arguing, debating, praying, worshiping. And finally, they said, this is our the clearest way that we can state the mystery. We worship the mystery. And in that statement, what they were saying is, we are trying to encapsulate in human language something that is incomprehensible. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When I think of evangelicals, I think of, say, the way we go back to the Reformers and the Protestant Reformation. And of course, there's a lot of pride and a lot of good credibility in making that move, isn't there? As evangelical Christians, as Protestant Christians, uh, the Reformers of the 16th century are such a, uh, a major foundation for uh, not just what we believe, but who we are. But of course, if we read the Reformers carefully, we may notice that actually the Reformers are not coming out of nowhere. They're not writing in a vacuum. They themselves are very much dependent on the church fathers before them. In fact, one of the accusations that sometimes gets thrown at them from their opponents is that, hey, you, you're teaching something novel here. You're teaching something new, maybe even something heretical. And more often than not, the, the reformers responded and said, actually, uh, much of what we are teaching is really a retrieval of what the fathers before us said already. In fact, uh, and this often uh, irritated some of their opponents when the reformers would say things like, hey, we're more Catholic than you. <laughs> and this type of argument, uh, though you know, we laugh about it today, it actually was quite essential uh, to their message. Uh, they saw themselves as uh, going back in time, uh, not only to understand the Bible uh, correctly, but to understand the God of the Bible and the gospel of salvation. And to do that, they noticed that the fathers had really laid a foundation that was uh, so essential to a right understanding of that God and the gospel of salvation. All that to say, today in the 21st century, we really ignore the fathers to our own peril. We, we might even put ourselves in, in danger, making ourselves vulnerable to, say, uh, modern theology at times and its departure from a classic or even orthodox Christianity. You think, for example, of the doctrine of the Trinity and how the fathers labored and and, and put their necks on the line in so many ways to ensure that the Trinity that we talk about today, that we confess, that we worship even, is a Trinity that is faithful to the Scriptures and one that is, is confessed by the church East and West. We see this, of course, in a creed like the Nicene Creed. And when we read a creed like that, we are essentially joining arms, holding hands with 
with those fathers who've come before us, east and west, as we confess uh, the, the God, this great God, triune God, together, and the gospel of salvation that he has accomplished. Well, I could go on, but I really want to get to our guest today because we have the privilege of having on Christopher Hall, who is, uh, I would say, uh, one of the, the most uh, influential individuals when it comes to um, promoting um, a patristic understanding of theology, even a patristic understanding of Christian living. Uh, you may know Christopher Hall from uh, many of his books. I need to say first, though, that he is president of Renovari, and uh, he taught at Eastern University for many, many years before that. You may know him, say, from uh, his uh, editorial work on the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture series. Of course, he's written a number of books on the Fathers, such as Reading Scripture with the Fathers, Learning Theology with the Fathers, the Church Fathers, Worshiping with the Church Fathers, and one of his more recent books called Living Wisely with the Church Fathers. Uh, Christopher Hall, it is really uh, a delight to have you on the Credo Podcast. Well, it's good to be with you. Don't call me Christopher, though. Okay. <laughs> Only my parents would <laughs> use that term, and rarely, and it was when I was in trouble. Okay. Well, uh, you're not in trouble here. It's really great to be with you. <laughs> so uh, I'll go with Chris, and, and, uh, and I, you know, when I think about, you know, all the work we've done here um, in terms of, you know, the last 10, 20 years, you know, the work that scholars have done and trying to retrieve the fathers, uh, you know, you think of someone like Thomas Oden, for example, yeah. uh, who, who you've, you know, worked with in so many ways and uh, entire projects uh, like the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture Project. Uh, so much work has been done to translate the fathers and get them into the hands and really in an accessible way and in, into the English language. Um, but there's also been a lot done in terms of just properly understanding their theology, but not just leaving it, say, at the academic level, but actually transitioning uh, from the, th the, the theology of the fathers to uh, what they thought about, say, Christian living, uh, what they thought about worship and doxology. And I think our, our listeners are going to find out today that actually they had a lot of what they said is quite relevant to our own cultural moment. But before we get to all that, let me just start with you personally. And yeah. How how tell us a little bit about your story. How was it that you first fell in love with the fathers? Well, uh, my background. Uh, this is a bit before your time, Matt. That's okay. <laughs> but when I was at school at UCLA uh, back in '68, uh, that was my first year there. Uh, a revival broke out across the University of California system, and that revival was the Jesus Movement. Yes. That's right. And, and so you're talking to an old Jesus freak. Well, as let me just say this. I have to interrupt you at this point because as a <laughs> California native myself, uh, we have a lot in common. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm probably the product of that in some ways. I grew up as, as a second-generation Jesus freak myself. <laughs> wow. Wow. So anyway, so that was my introduction. Uh, to a large extent, into things Christian. Mm. Uh, and of course, in the, in the Jesus movement, there was no theology of the church. That's right. Uh, no theology of the church at all. And secondly, uh, the folks that helped me, how to put this, they helped me understand how to get saved. But once I was saved, they didn't have a heck of a lot to say. Yeah. 
Uh, I didn't hear much about, uh, teaching us surely about the Trinity, mm. the incarnation, uh, and so on. And not a lot of uh, modeling or teaching about how to live. Yeah. How to live. Well, I'm in the kingdom now. How am I supposed to live here? But why is it important that we, we think of God as Trinity? But yeah. what difference does that make? Where's that, where's that in the Bible? And so right, on. Right. So uh, what happened was, uh, to make a long story short, hopefully, I ended up uh, up at Regent College after I'd got a, a degree at Fuller, was, was in uh, uh, some pastoral work for a while. I ended up at uh, Regent College after five years over in France, actually, planning a church over there. And it was at Regent up in Vancouver uh, where I had my first introduction. And it was through a directed study that I engaged in with Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, where I would, it was a standard, kind of standard, uh, standard uh, Oxford model where he would assign a, a book and I would read the book and write an essay and then sit outside his office door trembling while he was in reading the essay. And then he, he would call me into his office and tell me what he thought of the essay and pry into my mind a little bit about uh, what I'd read. Mm. And one of the books that we read together, I can still remember this. I think we'd finished up one book. Our, our session was about over. They usually lasted about 45 seconds. And he, ha he, he handed me, I think it was the Penguin edition of Augustine, City of God. Mm. And he said, Chris, Augustine, the City of God, the whole book. <laughs> And you must have looked so at looking, it. I'd never read it. I'd never read any church fathers. And I'm looking at a, a book that was over a thousand pages long and uh, knew I was going to have to write an essay and be back with him uh, in a week's time. And so uh, that was my first immersion. And my initial response was, well, this is, this is really interesting. Mm. I, never, I never knew a lot of this stuff. And some of the questions that Augustine was asking about God or the church's relationship to the Roman world and Roman deities and government and so on, all these things were interesting, but that was the only taste I got during that directed study. And then it was pretty much, I, I got a, a THM there, kind of piggyback on a, okay. a, a degree in the Bible that I got at Fuller. And so I wanted to go on and, and do doctoral work. And little did I know, Jim's gone now. He'd recently passed away. Little did I know that he and Tom Oden, who was at Drew yeah. at that time, uh, Tom being you know, a world-class patristic scholar, amongst other things, uh, he had had conversations with Tom. And, and how grace-filled is this? He said, I, th I think you want to, you want Chris at your school and you want to, you want to work with him. Mm. And I just had, my mind was barely coming to life. And so when I, so I ended up at, it drew in a PhD program and walked into this place called the great hall. It looked like a, a building at Oxford and there were posted on the a wall of the hall, uh, different professors in, who were at the university and who was assigned to which professor. And, I, and there was Tom's name. And there were four or five other students assigned to Tom, and I was one of them. Mm. And so uh, if you're going to work with Tom, in all likelihood, at that time, you're going to study uh, John Wesley, or you're going to study the Church Fathers. Uh, 
And I, you know, and I wasn't particularly uh, interested in John Wesley, though a wonderful man. Uh, I got that taste. That got that taste with with Jim Packer. Yeah. And then I I knew this is what I want to this is what I want to study. Yeah. And so uh, it took me four years to get that degree. Mm. Uh, it drew, and during that time, there were seminars I took in the Church Fathers. And I ended up uh, doing my doctoral work on John uh, Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, however you want to say it, and on a work that he had written on the providence of God mm. while he was in exile at the end of his life. And it turned out that the work had uh, not yet been translated into English at that time. It was a, a French translation. That was all there was. And so I translated the work and then uh, wrote an extended essay about the work. And, and by that time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the, I'm swimming in the ocean mm-hmm. right, with, with these folks who are so, were so similar to me in some ways and so different in other ways. Sure. And, and then what happened then, I got a job down at Eastern. I'm sitting in my offices about two or three years later, and, and I'm still in relationship with Tom. By that time, I was actually calling him Tom and not Dr. Odin. And he called up and he said, uh, we're, uh, we're going to do a commentary series. He said, we're, without talking to me, <laughs> we're going to do a commentary series uh, with the church fathers. I said, that's really interesting. And, and so the ancient Christian commentary on scripture was born. And he said, oh, and you're the, you're the associate editor. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> yeah, by the way. And so what happened was then uh, two other colleagues came on board. They were. Uh, Joel Lalowski and uh, Michael Glarup, who's up at Yale now. Uh, and it was Tom and me. And the four of us um, worked together for uh, well nigh 24 years. Mm. And Mike and Joel and I are still working together. And that's when the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, Ancient Christian Doctrine series, and Ancient Christian Texts, all published by uh, IVP Academic. Yeah. Uh, were produced. I think it's now over 45 or 50 yeah, volumes. That's right. The grace of God. It's yeah. just the grace of God. Yeah. And what was interesting, <clears throat> Matt, is we were hoping that uh, one volume, because these are these were expensive books when they were first produced. Mm. We were hoping, may Lord, may one volume at least sell a thousand copies. Yeah. Maybe 2,000. So, so uh, the press doesn't lose money. And so yeah. at least something gets out there. Do you remember who who was the first one you published? Uh, it was Mark. It was okay. Mark. It was the one that Tom and I did together. Okay. So what happened was uh, now there have been uh, I think I think if I'm correct over eight hundred and fifty thousand copies sold. Wow. And I, I mentioned that figure because that tells me that there's this thirst. Yeah. There's this thirst around the world amongst evangelicals, uh, Roman Catholics, Orthodox. Uh, but what struck me particularly was the evangelicals uh, and Protestant folk f- for these voices, for these voices that uh, surely supplement our tendency to rely solely on modern sources and learning our theology or learning how to read a Bible well. So that's, in a nutshell, that's how it happened. Now, you know, you've already uh, started to, to pique my interest here uh, talking about, you know, how do we read the Bible well? It may be 
I am guessing, and I'm speaking here even from personal experience, you know, as, as a pastor, you know, when you're sitting down, you know, you're busy in the midst of church yeah. ministry, right? You've got uh, all kinds of responsibilities. You're sitting down uh, at some point in the week to prepare that sermon for Sunday. Yeah. Um, I think the the default, you know, reaction or the default move is to, you know, reach over to the bookshelf and, and uh, or go to the library and pull off the shelf, you know, the most recent uh, or, or, or commentary or, or perhaps a, a, a commentary in the modern era. And, um, and then we, we, you know, ask them for assistance as we're trying to study the text. Now, that's not necessarily uh, wrong, uh, but at the same time, I don't think that many pastors are reaching over to the shelf and pulling out uh, a church father. Now, now, maybe some of that in the past has been, like you said, uh, there just have, haven't been uh, good translations. Well, some of the translations, the translations, uh, for example, Matt, you, you know, the ANF series and the Nicene and Post-Nicene series, the commentary uh, or, or actually the sermons of Chrysostom in that Matthew, common, uh, Matthew series of his sermons in the uh, NPNF, they're well nigh unreadable in English. Yeah, yeah. There's, because the translations tend to be King James English, stilted. Yeah. It's just so dry, it's like drinking sand. Yeah. So one of the things we wanted to do was to, to produce, a, oh, so for example, say you're, say you're going to preach a, a series on Matthew. Now there's a two-volume set in the ACCS, Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, where uh, Manuel Simonetti sent our team an Italian intro, and then every entry for this particular commentary uh, in the, that series, every entry either in Greek or Latin. Mm. But we had a team of gifted translators that were able to translate uh, in that volume the text into very, very readable commentary. So if you're, if you're that pastor who's reaching up for whoever that modern commentary uh, commentator might be you can also reach up and there it is matthew 4 matthew 5 sermon on the mount a wonderful commentary from the fathers and here's what i've discovered because sometimes you know i get the opportunity to preach every now and then or or teach a, a class every now and then whenever i quote god's truth now whenever i quote from the fathers almost invariably you can hear a pin drop mm. because that because folks have never heard that kind of commentary before yeah. you'll hear oh i i never thought of it that way yeah. oh i didn't know christians believe that that kind of commentary right. so um there's there's bridge building that we can do uh i'm so encouraged by you you know, I'm 70, you know, I'm, who knows how many, 10, 15 years left, maybe. Uh, there's still bridge building to be done. Yeah. But surely a voice is worth listening to, mm-hmm. I think. I hope our, our listeners hear that because you don't, um, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be fluent in all the languages. Um, many of these commentaries, um, even even works of theology by the fathers have are now being made available in very accessible English, 
And so do not fear, you know, pull off one of those fathers from the shelf. And uh, uh, as Chris is saying here, you may be absolutely surprised by uh, not just the insights they bring, but uh, how your people respond to them. Now, now, Chris, uh, you know, we're talking about how the fathers can be um, appropriated. Maybe we should um, just back up for a second and just say, yeah. what, what is, for our listeners who may not be as familiar, what is, what is it about the fathers in terms of biblical interpretation that is so unique and so valuable? Yeah, here, here, here's how I'd put it. Tom had, had a phrase that was really helpful to me when I was first learning about the fathers. And Tom's phrase was, Chris, the Holy Spirit has a history. Mm. The Holy Spirit has a history. And I probably looked at him with a somewhat blank look, you know, with my <laughs> evangelical background. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was thinking what he meant by that was people didn't start reading the Bible in the 16th century. Yeah. That they started, uh, folk, folks were uh, reading and, and uh, listening to Scripture being read and making comments about Scripture, preaching on Scripture into the, you know, mid uh, first century, right up, right on up to the 15th or 16th, surely some distortions creeping in over time and so on. But folks who were very near, very near to the time of the apostles themselves. I think some of these folks actually, actually might've known Mm. John, Mm. for example, maybe uh, Ignatius of Antioch maybe Polycarp, actually known the Apostle John. So I, co- I coined a phrase why it's important to listen to them that seems to have uh, helped people. Now, uh, and the phrase was uh, hermeneutical proximity. Mm. Hermeneutical proximity. And what I meant by that was these folks are very near to the apostles themselves. I think it... I think it Ignatius might have been born something between 33 and 36 uh, AD. So he, he's born, he's living in this time, and he's left behind sermons, he's left behind letters as he was being taken to his martyrdom in Rome and so on. So what I mean by proximity then is, unless he's a, mu- a musical term, uh, these folks know the music. I say they know the music of the gospel very well. Mm. Doesn't mean they know it perfectly, but they know the the movements of the symphony. They know how the different movements of the symphony are related. Their minds were uh, surely something like a biblical Rolodex. You think about the mind of a Jerome or an Augustine, they're just immersed in this text and they were immersed uh, in the, in the worship of the church. And so within the context of worship, they had to resolve key issues. Mm -hmm. Well, it looks, so I can see uh, Athanasius, Archbishop of uh, Alexandria, I can see him saying something like this, as people are arguing about whether Jesus was actually God, God incarnate. And one of the ways that uh, Athanasius was able to resolve that was not simply by turning to the Bible itself, because other interpreters of the Bible, uh, Arius himself, uh, we could call them Bible thumpers. You know, they would say, 
you know, just read the Bible for crying out loud and you would know that Jesus isn't God. God doesn't act like this. God doesn't ask how many loaves of bread there are. God doesn't uh, fall asleep and so on. Uh, God doesn't get afraid uh, because death is looming on the horizon like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, So these were Bible thumpers. And of course, Athanasius is responding on the basis of the Bible. Same biblical text, different meaning. So what do you do when you're disagreeing as a community about the meaning of a text? Still happens today, huh? Yeah. What do you do? What do you do? Well, what Athanasius did, he turned to the worship of the church. Mm. And he said, listen, listen, boys. Even in Aryan churches, you worship Christ as God. There's a reason why. And so he backed up his exegesis, his interpretation of the Bible, with how the church as a community was worshiping and combined them both together, coming up with a a hermeneutical grid of sorts, worship, prayer, liturgy, uh, communion, what that meant, uh, biblical exegesis. And he ended up uh, in other fathers with a very powerful presentation of what the gospel sounds like. I'd probably say what it smells like, Mm. uh, what it tastes like, uh, uh, and and left us with, I think, a healthy way of uh, approaching the text. I think it could help evangelicals. Matt, I got to tell you, I just read today that in CT, that 68% of evangelicals who responded to a survey, yeah. 68% still think Jesus was an exalted creature. Wow, 68. And 68, uh, when, I respond, when I was asked to analyze that survey about four years ago, it was in the 70s. So at least it's got a tiny bit better. 68 out of 70, on the basis of what they're being taught in church, what they're, what's being preached, and um, their own reading and study, whatever it might be, they're ending up supporting one of the great heresies of the church. And then uh, to move on, a, a brief comment on the Holy Spirit. Evangelicals are terribly confused about the Holy Spirit. Terribly confused about whether the Spirit is simply a force, is the Spirit personal, a host of issues. So the church has already decided. Yeah. We decided these issues way back when. Yeah. Uh, but um, evangelical folk, you know, good Bible folk, simply haven't had the exposure that I think they need to have to be able to um, to read the Bible well, to read mm-hmm. the Bible uh, safely and sanely, uh, and and to read the Bible in a way that the gospel is supported. You know, every evangelical I know would say, "Well, Jesus died for my sin." Amen. Amen. Well, a creature can't save you from your sin. Yeah. Only God can. That's Athanasius. So that's my point. So you have the worship of the church, hermeneutical proximity, um, and then just a host of uh, biblical and theological insight. Mm. A treasure chest is how I would yeah. put it. Yeah. That you can, you, know, you can pull out jewel by jewel for most of your life. That's right. With a little help, with a little help, with a little coaching. 
Now, you know, you've mentioned uh, here the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ. I mean, that, that statistic is just staggering. Um, it, it's, a, it's a bit shocking even. Uh, well, it, it should be shocking. We should be running, we should run down the street howling. Yeah. Howling. That's right. Into the night uh, when we get a statistic like that. I mean, immediately what comes to my mind is, you know, if with a statistic that high is, you know, how, how many churches, uh, maybe even pastors, uh, are even familiar with, say, the Nicene Creed. And uh, I think probably for a lot of evangelicals, you know, you mentioned the word creed and, you know, they might start to get a little bit nervous. Um, but well, as, I think that might be true for Baptist folk. Yeah. That's right. You're teaching at a Baptist school. (laughs) That's exactly right. So there's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done. Um, That being the case, uh, you know, when we think about, say, the Nicene Creed, you know, is this uh, just some some ancient uh, document, or or is this ancient document uh, actually incredibly? Uh, important to uh, our our understanding of the Trinity of Christ today. You know, I think of um, Gregory's, the way he talked about God and Christ. And, you know, is this uh, this doctrine of the Trinity, especially, you know, we think of, say, the the 20th century, right? And kind of the influx of uh, various forms of uh, social Trinitarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be this major shift, and it even affects um, evangelical circles, uh, this major shift from, say, a, a Nicene understanding of the Trinity to uh, a social understanding of the Trinity. And with that uh, comes all kinds would you, of— would you, So would the, your listeners be familiar with what you mean when you say a social understanding of the Trinity? Yeah, versus- so would you like to, to maybe— um, Differentiate well, between can, the two. You know, or maybe I could just make a brief comment. Uh, and, and there are social Trinitarian theologians who are friends of mine. <laughs> you know, good friends. And we just happen to disagree. We just happen to disagree at this point. So um, here, generally speaking, is what a social Trinitarian might say, because I I really do want to be fair to their position. So I'll try to. Uh, explain it as clearly as possible. Uh, God, God, you have, you have God, and then God is a, com, uh, a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oftentimes you'll hear the language all participate in the being of God. Mm-hmm. And it's like a family. It's like a family. And so, uh, and then the, the theology will develop from that point. So oftentimes, uh, social Trinitarian would be the idea. So you have the, the idea of uh, social relationships, mm-hmm. individuals in relationship with one another, like a father is in relationship with the son and, uh, and so on. I think it's a faulty, faulty model because it's uh, well for, for two or three reasons. One is, and I'll try to represent uh, what I think is the consensus of the fathers at this point: there is no God behind Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm. The very being of God is 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, at that point, if we're, if we're, if we're teaching this well, at that point, listeners should be saying, huh? What do we mean? What? I've never, ever seen anything like that. But see, that's the point. With uh, Social Trinitarians will tend to start, start with a model of community that's based on human relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll think of individuals, for example, distinct from one another in a family where one person talks to another person. One person in the family thinks one thing, another person thinks another thing, they offer something to each other and so on. The Trinity simply is not like that. Mm. So I think the basic mistake is in the social Trinitarian model to start with us and move to our understanding of God. And the fathers, I think, would all be saying, no, no, no. We start with God. We start with the wonder and mystery and beauty of God. And then we begin to ask questions about what are the implications for our understanding of communion. Mm. So, um, for example, my students at Eastern, I hope that was helpful. My students at Eastern, uh, predictably, I, I don't mean to exaggerate, and it just hadn't been taught well, predictably uh, heretical. When it comes to the Trinity, oftentimes I would hear this kind of language as I was prying a little bit, trying to move to a new place. <laughs> I'd hear, well, you know, uh, uh, the Father's part of God mm-hmm. and the Son's part of God and the Holy Spirit's part of God. And you they, know, this early is this Christian heresy yeah. of God having parts. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a, a four-leaf clover. Yeah. Or it's like uh, ice, water, and gas. Some illustrations that you can still run across in, in uh, theology books. Uh, and all of them, cl- uh, from my perspective, clearly in danger of crossing the line, if not having crossed the line, into tritheism, yeah. where we end, up, we end up worshiping three gods. If ever the father thinks something different from the son or an accent any way different from the son or the spirit from the son or the father in any way different other than the relationship itself between father, son, and spirit, you've got three gods. But but, uh, people listening in are thinking, you know, I've never... Perhaps I've never heard it expressed that way before. Sure. What does that mean? How do, I, how do I learn about this? And I think the way that we, we learn about this is through something you were asking about the Nicene Creed. We learn by taking a look at these uh, creedal statements, Nicene Creed being a, you know, a key one, particularly for the church in the West, a key one, where we, we listen to bishops. You know, bishops, leaders of the church got together in council and for well nigh 80 or 90 years, they're arguing, debating, praying, worshiping. And finally, they said, this is our, the clearest way that we can state the mystery. We worship the mystery. And in that statement, what they were saying is, we are trying to encapsulate in human language something that is incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And if we rely, if we rely on 
uh, models of a human family and then move from that model into the wonder of the mystery, it's going to snap. We'll, we'll, re we'll, we'll reduce the mystery down to something that can be comprehended. And the minute we do that, we're in trouble. God's you know, made it clear in almost every page of the scripture, it seems to me, to speak hyperbolically. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm incomprehensible. I'm not mm -hmm. going to fit in your categories. Uh, learn that from the very beginning. Your categories are not ones that will apply uh, in a in a one on one relationship with who I am. You may address me as father, but when you do so, know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. That, Same you know, thing with Jesus as the incarnate Son mm. or the Holy Spirit. For example, fifty-one percent, fifty-three percent of evangelicals think the Spirit is an impersonal force. Yeah. No, the Spirit's just as personal as the Father and the Son. If the Spirit was in any way different from the Father and the Son in terms of personality or anything else, other than the relational distinction, you've got three gods. Yeah. And and. Just for, so our listeners um, are, are tracking with this, because Chris, you've said this. I mean, how, how you're describing this is so so well, so accessible. When we describe our triune God and say, you know, we, we don't want to say, you know, they have different centers of consciousness or different centers of will. That's right. Or, um, we're saying that they are uh, they are one. Um, they are simple. So there we're we're referring to simplicity that God is without parts. And yeah, so, that gets back to my students, you know, part of God here, part of God. Yeah, that's right, Matt. That's, that's right. That's really, yeah. God doesn't, God's not made up of anything. And so when we, you know, the question may then come, well, why, you know, what, what then distinguishes them as triune? Well, there we are saying, and, and this is where the fathers are so helpful as they are interpreting scripture, they're recognizing that, well, it's their relations, their eternal relations alone. The, the Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten. The, the Spirit is spirated. Um, these alone are the biblical distinctions that, that we are given. Yeah, it's a kind of language. It's a kind of technical language yeah. Yeah. that the fathers use on the basis of texts like uh, Jesus is, is uh, the only begotten son. Mm. It's a technical language they use to try to preserve the biblical testimony as well as they can. And um, we've sort of lost that vocabulary somewhere along the way. We, we we're not we, familiar with it anymore. Yeah, we, we're not familiar with it anymore, but I, th I think that's what's encouraging to me. Yeah. If you spend time with folks, if you spend time with folks and say there might be a pastor listening in and perhaps the pastor has been catechized well yeah. or taught well, yeah. uh, then he can take the riches of what's offered to him by the Holy Spirit's history and explain that to a group. I've done it. Yeah. You know, now I'm in an Anglican church. Yeah. So these folks uh, historically uh, uh, tend to be biblically illiterate, but at least they're hearing the liturgy <laughs> every week. So one of the things I, I did for a long time was teach folks the Bible. Mm. And, that, and so what, but when they get to the language of the Nicene Creed, they're hearing this every week. Mm. Mm. They're hearing it every week because they recite the creed every week. Yeah. Excellent. You know, it's so, I, I have to just say 
how encouraging it is to hear, you know, that, that you and your church is doing that sort of thing. I have, you know, you, you, you let the, the cat out of the bag here. I'm, I'm a, a Baptist and, you know, yeah. con- convictional and, and, um, one of the things I've tried to do and as I've pastored in the past is just that to say, Hey, uh, we're going to take a, we're going to take a moment in our service and, and uh, let me just tell you about this thing called the Apostles Creed, uh, or maybe it's the Nicene Creed. If you've got a, you know, a church that's really ready um, and hungry, and uh, and then after that we say it together. And um, you know, in, in my experience, yeah, there may be a little bit of suspicion and that sort of thing, but uh, it's so encouraging as everyone together is confessing this faith, confessing the gospel, confessing the the triune God of the gospel together. And recognizing, hey, we, we're not alone. We're actually linking arms with those who have come before us, Christians throughout the church universal. And uh, that can be an enormous comfort uh, in, in just countless ways. Which reminds me, Chris, you know, as we're, you know, we've been talking about doctrine of the Trinity and biblical interpretation. But of course, when we talk about the fathers, and this may be a total shock to some of our listeners, they may be surprised to find out that. Uh, the fathers actually are very, very applicable and relevant to some of the cultural challenges that we face today, as well as just how to wisely live the Christian life. Now, I know uh, I've opened a, a whole can of worms here, but maybe you could just for a oh, minute here right. uh, tell us, you know, what, what maybe, you know, someone who's playing devil's advocate here would say, well, you know, maybe it's good for doctrine, the fathers, but they they really wouldn't have anything to say to my Christian life. Well, that's that's a that's more than fair. That's more than fair. I was thinking a little bit about the ch- particular challenge, um, and then I'll get to this particular uh, issue. The challenge you face, Matt, and other uh, Baptist pastors might face because Baptists don't have a creedal history. In fact, Baptists tend to be suspicious. So I think one of the best things to do is you just hang out with people. And ask questions. Mm. Ask questions. You're dealing with a biblical text, and someone says, Yes, Jesus died for my sins. And well, what what do you think the implications that may, might be for who Jesus is? Mm. And then you have texts of Paul, and you weave, begin to weave these texts together like the fathers did. So Mattis, in a manner of speaking, you know how the, wa- the rug has been woven together and you can just weave it together or other Baptist pastors maybe live it, listening in can weave it together with mm-hmm. uh, the, the community and perhaps end up at a different place. Now, regarding um, this book I wrote called Living uh, Wisely with the Church Fathers, one of the things that's uh, interesting about their world is yes, it is dissimilar. Mm-hmm. The Roman world is dissimilar. Uh, uh, the Greek and Roman world, let's put it that way, is dissimilar from our world. But there are certain uh, commonalities that are quite striking. Uh, here, here are some of them. Uh, people during their age, as they became Christians, had lots of questions about money. Mm. You know, how should I spend my money? How much money should I have? How can I live a more simple life? 
you find the Christian community in their time asking the same kinds of questions that we uh, ask now. Uh, there were questions about service in the military, for example. You know, think of the United States. Oh, my goodness. Uh, think about the way that we have identified in many, many times uh, the United States of America with the kingdom of God. Uh, the fathers, surely up to the time of Constantine, the Roman emperor who converts, uh, there was a consensus up to his time. I write about this in this book that uh, there was a consensus Christians can't serve in the military. Oh. And that gradually changed his uh, uh, perspectives in that particular area, lined up more with a standard Roman view. The same thing can happen uh, with us today with some of what we'll tend to identify as Christian, and maybe we need to take a step back and a closer look. Mm. So, uh, so, for example, uh, in the second century, if a, if a Christian, a Roman soldier became a, a Christian, uh, uh, he'd, he'd likely be martyred because of the religious significance uh, given to the Roman eagle. Lots of what he was doing as a Roman soldier was interwoven with Roman uh, religious beliefs. Right. So, uh, so, you, so in the book, I've got it right here. Uh, in the book, I talk about things like this. Uh, issues that have to do with money. Issues that have to do with martyrdom. Mm. Uh, issues that have to do with war and military service. Of course, the Roman culture was a sexually overheated culture. As a as Packer like like this phrase, a hot tub a hot culture, describing <laughs> our own our own culture. A hot tub uh, culture. Yeah. Well, yeah. so the, these folks were living in a sexually overheated society, yeah. or they didn't have the technology that we have in terms of pornography. But you, in any inn, Roman inn that you would stay in overnight, there was in all likelihood to be pornographic paintings on the wall. Mm. There'd be pornographic statuary on street corners. Uh, and oftentimes in the, in the villas, uh, pornographic statuary in a Roman's uh, a senator's villa, and they wouldn't think twice about it. Yeah. And so these folks are asking the question, well, now I'm, I'm following a different uh, king, which was also problematic. Right. Uh, how, I, how can I learn to live a chaste life, a pure life? Uh, issues of life and death. Uh, evangelicals are rightly concerned about um, issues such as abortion. They were back in those days too. Mm. In those days too, uh, they were equally uh, concerned about other uh, social issues that for some folks would make people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. You can read, uh, for example, Basil the Great or uh, others of the fathers writing about the poor and the oppressed, and it's like their hair is on fire. Yeah. How can you walk past somebody on the street who's starving to death and you don't see him? Yeah. Uh, John Chrysostom, he preached a series of sermons on the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah. So they were, they were really concerned about um, issues of social justice and uh, issues of entertainment. Now think about us. Think about our none love of, for none of that's relevant. Uh, none of that's <laughs> relevant to today, right? <laughs> uh, well, issues of entertainment, um, the Roman theater, which is oftentimes sexually charged, mm -hmm. uh, the Roman games, 
the love of violence is entertainment in the Roman world. Uh, the intermixing of uh, Roman religious rites, uh, Roman uh, allegiance to the state, and the Roman games. It, 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 so at the beginning of almost every race in the circus, you would recognize the emperor. It's almost like the national anthem would be sung. Mm. And so um, there's lots of ways that their culture lines up with ours in terms of some basic issues. There's also significant differences. And so because they're living in a different age and a different time, I found it, found it really helpful to be able to compare. And so uh, I, I, I don't think it would be an all unlikely that if, if, if uh, Athanasius visited culture, the, our cultural situation in the United States, or, or others of the fathers, there would be days when he would be saying to the Christian community, what in the world are you thinking? Yeah. Yeah. What in the world are you thinking? Uh, how, how could you be considering this something that's entertaining? Yeah. And, and so on. Um, so there's a... Um, they don't, like Lewis said, they don't tend to be blind where we're blind. Mm. They have their blind spots, but they don't yeah. tend to be blind yeah. where we're blind. You know, I'm so glad that you brought C.S. Lewis into this conversation. Uh, for, for our listeners, if you have, you know, never read A Church Father, you may want to just start with Athanasius on the Incarnation, for example. But I would encourage you to read, it's, it's just a short preface written by C.S. Lewis, where he talks about many of the things that uh, Chris is talking about uh, on this podcast. And he talks, uh, for example, about uh, chronological snobbery and, and how that actually uh, keeps us from seeing our own blind spots, which the fathers yeah. are all too keen to point out. We've been talking to Christopher Hall uh, president of Renovari and uh, editor of the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture series. Uh, he, if you haven't read uh, one of Chris's books, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, pick up, uh, you know, any one of these: reading Scripture with the Church Fathers, learning theology with the Church Fathers. Uh, maybe for some of you, you know, as you're you're pastoring in the local church, maybe you want to uh, pick up his book, Worshiping with the Church Fathers or living wisely with the church fathers to see uh, how applicable uh, so much of what the father says, you know, how applicable it is to the church today. Chris, uh, goodness, there is, as you mentioned earlier, what a treasure trove, right? When we come to the fathers, but th this podcast with you uh, has just been a treasure chest. So thank you so much for coming on the Creed podcast. Oh, it's, been, it's been fun for me, Matt. Lots of fun. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.